Welcome to Profiles. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is Tsuigi Jackson Kagori. Mr. Kagori was born and raised in Uganda in East Africa. He came to the United States in 1995 as a visiting scholar studying human rights advocacy at Columbia University in New York. He lost two family members to the HIV-AIDS epidemic and watched countless others suffer. He became involved in efforts to fight HIV-AIDS and the devastation it leaves in its wake, such as the millions of orphans suffering from homelessness, poverty, hunger, and a lack of education. Mr. Kaguri initiated Nayaka and Kutamba AIDS orphan schools in rural Uganda. The community schools provide education, housing, support, and a community to the orphans. Welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much, Shana. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Tresiki, tell me a little bit about the Uganda of your childhood, and um, both Uganda as a country and then also the area of Uganda that you grew up in. I grew up in southwestern Uganda, uh, right on the border with Rwanda, and Democratic Republic of Congo. At that time, it was called Zaire. Uh, a fertile area, green all year round. My parents had five children. All five of us would wake up in the morning and harvest our food. After harvesting food in the morning, run seven to eight miles and go to school. It was a beautiful childhood. I have nothing but beautiful memories of this rural area, everything protected, everything loving. A child belongs to the community. We went to church every Saturday. We walked together, walked together, and everyone looked out for each other. It was beautiful. And how has that changed now? The country is still beautiful. (laughs) The land is still green all year round. But a devastation of HIV-AIDS pandemic has swept through these beautiful hills and beautiful area and took it from this happy place, the place now where you take every step and somebody has died. You take every step, there's somebody being buried. You take every step, there's a grandmother who is wearing and crying because she cannot provide for the grandchildren that we are left with these people. All of us who went through, grew up in this community, our parents had only one thing on their minds. They wanted to make sure their children get an education. And these are parents who have never had education themselves. But they knew if they educate a child, the child's life will be changed forever They will break the cycle of poverty and privation, but these children also will come back one day and take care of them. Was there not a push and pull um, in some families in terms of educating children would also mean losing children from the area? Yes, that is always there. You, you, You weigh which one is better and which one is less. Many parents have more children because they want labor on their farms. But they also know in a wrong town, any time rain will come and hailstorm will come and destroy all your crops. But no hailstorm can st- destroy your, co- your education. Mm-hmm. And so they invest in you 
knowing once you leave the area, you're going to be out there, whether you're a doctor, working and saving lives of others, while also sending them money to keep growing more crops. If you're a lawyer, you're going to go to the city, you will come back and take care of them, with support them with money. These are men and women who have never worked. They don't mm-hmm. have a paycheck in their lives. They depend on crops they grow. Mm-hmm. And so they are, I call them visionaries. They invest in a child which takes more than 16 years to educate a child to where they graduate. Their aim is once they graduate, we can rest. But what has happened is while all these children graduated, including my brother and my sister, HIV AIDS came and stole these lives before they went back to take care of them. So it's a devastated rural community. Mm-hmm. Instead of gardens, now you see graves. Instead of women waking up and go to their gardens, they are taking care of sick patients. When somebody gets sick in the city, they are transported back to their parents' house. So a woman who would wake up and go to the garden for half a day, now she's taking care of a sick patient who is not going to get better. Mm-hmm. But just like you and I, when we have a sick person, you can never give up. Your hope is you find medication, you sell your clothes, you sell your chicken, you sell your goat, hoping and wishing this person is going to get better. On HIV AIDS does not get better. The person eventually dies, leaving a family completely out of anything they can support children with. When did um, the pandemic reach your area of Uganda? How many years ago? Uh, this was in the late, uh, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. 80s was when it was identified in Kampara. But as people would get sick in Kampara, they would be Which sent... Which is the capital of Uganda. Capital Uganda, city correct. of Uganda. They would send them back to their ancestral homes. See, in Uganda, everyone leaves the country trying to find jobs in the city. But when you are sick, your employer usually says... You are not useful to me anymore. Leave the job, leave the house where you live. The house houses are provided by your employer, and then they are sent back to the mm-hmm. village. This was in late 1990s, early 1990s, late 90s. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest is Twisigi Jackson Kaguri, and we're talking about Uganda, the HIV-AIDS pandemic, and what steps Mr. Kaguri has taken to bring some hope back to his area. Before we go on to the to the founding of one school and then the other, a later quote in the book that you wrote, The Price of Stones, mm-hmm. talks about the fact that you can't always learn directly from experience, while that may be the best way, but that you can learn a lot from anecdotal stories. Yes. Tell me a few anecdotal stories that will help me to better understand the uh, life of your family and community in Uganda. Uh, so I, uh, five of us who were born to my family, I'm the youngest of, of five children. Uh, as young as I could remember, my sisters and my brother were going to school. So every morning I would wake up. You wake up in a small house the size of this studio or 
10 by 15. 10 maybe? by 15. That's the house for all seven of us. My five siblings and my dad and mom has one bedroom for for my parents and the rest is open space where you put your plates for eating, you have beds or not beds but uh, you cut grass from outside, put it under, and your mom gives you one of her cloth. You put it on top, lie down. If you are lucky, you get another cloth to cover yourself. If not, you all sleep. You feed from each other's heat. As uh, as far as I could remember, I slept behind the door, and my ma- my dad would stay out for after we worked all day. He would go out to the pub to drink and get acquainted with his friends. And they would come back around 11 p.m. or midnight. So that meant every night when he came back, they had to wake me up, get him inside the house, and then close the door again. And this is not your typical door. Also, it's a shutter that has <laughs> cracks in it. When light is out, you see the light. When somebody's outside and there is a light inside, you, you can see it. No electricity, no running water. But as far as I could remember as a child, I wanted to go to school and follow my sisters, see where they went to school. So this one day, I wake up. I was four and a half years old. I woke up and I said, I'm going to go to school today. I had tried several times and my dad would catch me before I go to the school. What I didn't know, Shana, was school was seven and a half miles from our house to where my sisters went. And what age do you usually start school? Six years old. So you have to be six to start school. But because of my sisters waking up and speak English and do homework once in a while while we are in the garden, and they would tell all these stories, I started this. I was curious. I wanted to go. And so my sisters didn't want me to follow them because they would be in trouble. And my dad didn't want me to go early because going early meant he has to start selling chicken and goats now to send me on top of the ones he was send, selling. So six years is also to buy time mm-hmm. so you, the family can grow more crops and sell to send you. There's no free school. There's no free school in Uganda. So I made it, I, I went, and you get to a point where you look forward, you don't know where you're going, you look back, you don't know where you're coming from, and there are streams, you turn and go around the hill. So I was a lost child completely, but I crossed the river, and I got to school eventually. You made your way there. <sighs> there I am. I am at school, but when I looked outside, all the children were wearing white shirts and khaki pants mm-hmm. and skirts. You have to wear a uniform in Uganda. There I was standing, and everybody who saw me said, whoop, he escaped again. <laughs> so I ran behind to hide behind the window, and I'm standing in the window trying to see inside the classroom, and guess who is behind me? My Your dad, <laughs> hands folded, Tracy J. Jackson Kagori. He took me home that day and said, Jackson, you are too young to go to school. You keep skipping to go to school. But since you keep insisting, I'm going to send you tomorrow. But in schools, you must pass an exam each year to go from one level to another. So my dad says to me, I'm going to send you tomorrow. You are the youngest. Ah, So when you sit for exam, you're going to fail it. But... 
if you are interested in going to school and you've kept running away going there, tomorrow I will send you on one condition. If you ever fail an exam, you will never go back. Do you want to go? Yes, Daddy. Next morning, he sold a goat and bought me uniform and pens and books, and he sent me to school. Set me up for failure. And since that day to date, I've never failed an exam in my entire life. Well, that explains your tenacity and your love for education. What made you, what made you decide to start the Nayaka School? And tell me about that. As I am at Columbia University. I'm studying human rights, international law and human rights. And while I'm at Columbia University in 1996, my brother back home in Uganda was dying of HIV AIDS. I went back from JF Kennedy, flew over Europe and went to Uganda. And the brother who I had left in Uganda, 200 pound, six two tall, married man, three children. He was my idol. He's the man I saw every day doing good things. We went to church. He sang in church. He gave me his clothes. I still have some of the clothes he would hand me down. And this man now had shrunk to like 80 pounds. It was just bones laying in bed. And two weeks later, he died in my hands. And while he's dying, he kept telling me, make sure I take care of my children. And make sure I take care of his children. Yes, I did. Picked up and started taking care of his children. Make sure they have uniform. They stay in school. His wife had to go on medication now. And because we able to provide her medication, she's still alive today. Then 1997, my sister also died. The biggest issue for my sister, her only one son was born with HIV AIDS. And so now I have my sister-in-law who is on medication, my nephew who is on medication, and I have this family of four. I'm young. I just came back from America. I want to buy a car. I want to build a house. And now I have to get all the little money from my stipend from Colombia spent on these children. And I did it happily. Every Christmas, I would get these children and put them in a car and drive eight and a half hours to go visit my parents. Mm-hmm. On my parents' mind, they had lost their social security, their retirement, their food, their health care in my brother and my sister. The chain had been broken. Exactly. And for them, they are looking at Jackson and my other two sisters still living as, when are you dying? Theirs was now, because they had watched many other people in the village lose all eight children, nine children. And they are looking at the children who are coming to see them as, these are going to be us now taking care of them. But each time I go to the village, other grandmothers, other people who had lost all their children, would bring their grandchildren with them, knowing Jackson just came from America. He graduated. They knew about my argument with my dad. They had prayed for me. Please prove him wrong. Please keep passing your exams. And they would come and line up asking me for a pencil, a pen, or a paper so they can stay in school. And that was the turning point for me. 
looking at the nieces and nephews I have here who are lucky to have an uncle who can take care of them, and these other thousands of other children who have nobody left, just looking for a pencil, a two-cent pencil to save their lives. And that's why Nyaka was started. And how did you start it? A young, you were very young, you had no real money, and I imagine you had, while you had been studying development, you had never actually tried to raise money at that no. point. At that point, uh, actually, we were just leaving California. My wife had gotten a postdoc position here at IU. Your connection to Indiana University. Yes, here at IU in Jordan Hall as a postdoc. So we had just moved here, living on 17th Street here in townhouses on 17th Street. And, and the way we did it is really we went to the village and spoke to elders and local people and said they knew about my passing pencils and what my brother had done before. So I sat down with the community and said, how can we help you? And everyone said, we want our children to go to school. So how do we find land? We had saved money to buy a house here in Bloomington, $5,000. We took that $5,000 and went in the village and bought land and built two classrooms. Those were like 12 by 14, mm -hmm. two classrooms, no shelters, nothing, just bare brick and uh, uh, roof corrugated iron roofs mm -hmm. like you see in a country. Mm -hmm. And we put it there and said we are going to have students come here. We'll pay two teachers. And the teachers said, no, you don't have to pay us. We'll teach for free. This is such a wonderful gift for us. A retired teacher came back and another young man, and they started teaching students. 56 students. That was January 2nd, 2003, right here from Bloomington to the village in Inyaka. Hmm. And now, in 2011, you have two schools? Now, in 2011, actually, we go back to 2003, where we are here in Bloomington. Uh, we attended church in the town. And July 2003, George W. Bush was the president. Yes, he was. He goes to Uganda to visit. While he's in Uganda... A friend of mine from church said, while George Bush is in Uganda, let's talk to the Herald Times because everybody's thinking about Uganda so they can write something about your school. And I think it was July 18th, Dan Dunne at Herald Times wrote an article with a big picture at made front page. Mm -hmm. in Bloomington. And that was a breaking point for our support in Bloomington, which has continued to this date. Now, you take it from 2003, the kids came in. We thought we were going to educate all the children who were orphaned, only to find out there are more than 5,000 children in that area, school-aged children, and we needed only 50. We stretched the number and admitted 56, and chose the ones who are the poorest of the poor. Mm -hmm. Jackson's nieces are orphans, but grandma, so-and-so, their orphans have no chicken even in the house. Those will go first before Jackson's nieces mm -hmm. go. We selected those, and now we've grown. 
And your school charges no fees and supplies uniforms, but there's many other services as well. Yeah, we provide free uniform. We give them two meals a day. We re- the teachers realized all the kids were coming to school hungry and sleepy and coughing, and nobody would even concentrate. So we took a holistic approach, providing them two meals a day. Hired a school nurse from 56 then to 547 students, two schools, and others who have graduated and gone to secondary school. We started a clean water system for the entire village, working with Bloomington North Rotary Club here and Bloomington Rotary Club and Sunrise, then other clubs in East Lansing and Pennsylvania. We built a community water system for the entire village. 25,000 people get clean water as a result of our project. We hired nurses, and now we have built a clinic. The gardens that started now is 17 acres of land where we grow food. Built a library, started a grandmother's program that helps more than 7,000 grandmothers in what you would call a county, like Monroe County, Mm -hmm. 7,000 grandmothers who take care of children who don't even come to our schools but now have a hand in helping because Nyaka is there. I want to talk more about the Grandmother's Program, about the farm, and about the schools. But let's take a break and listen to a song that you chose. And it is um, Draw Me Close. By It's the Luganda version by the Uganda Gospel Choir. Yes. And why did you choose that? Again, it is uh, Draw, Me, Draw Me Close. is a, a song sung. It's mainly in English. And this man imitated it and, and did it. It, again, brings you closer to what we are talking about here. Uh, Many times when we think of gospel, we think of what Jesus did for us, and we don't put it in application what we do for each other. And this man, when he sang it, he sang it without application. We need to be close to each other, and when we are close to each other, we can solve every problem. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. Our guest, Chiswigi Jackson Kaguri, is the founder of the Nayaka School for HIV-AIDS Orphans in Uganda and many other programs. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. 
information at smithville.net. We have been talking about the conception of the Dayaka School and how it grew from two classrooms to now providing very holistic services for the school and for the community. I'm a grandmother myself. Tell me about your grandmother's program. Uh, The grandmother's program fits into that holistic approach. In uh, 2011, February 2011, United Nations invited me to speak. And they wanted me specifically to talk about why our small schools in rural Uganda are more successful and what they can learn from us as we approach Millennium Goal to educate all children by 2015. And I talked about the holistic approach we take. But we went beyond the classroom and beyond the school and went where children live. Who stays with these children? Mm -hmm. Grandmothers. What are their biggest need? As grandmothers, we are losing a child at a time. As you know, stigma with HIV AIDS, it created these boundaries. A community that was always together, now a grandma doesn't want to meet another one because they are going to ask them about, oh, your daughter died of HIV AIDS. Stigma became so big in the community that people started disintegrating. So now as Nyaka came in and we were putting children in the hands of grandmothers, not necessarily biological grandmothers, but a woman who is elderly, we wanted them to organize themselves, number one. So we told them over the radio, get together, form a group. Your number one objective is to empower each other. Make a support system. Know that within my group, when my girl runs out of the house, I can call Shana and say, how do you deal with that? Or maybe Shana took a psychology class. Some of these grandmothers went to school. How do you deal with this? Mm. Or your church can pray for my child. Mine is too young. They are just growing teeth. I don't remember even what I did with my children. So we wanted them in a support system. But as they organized, they also realized, oh, I grow tomatoes, you grow cabbages, we can come and swap once a week. I get a tomato, you get a cabbage, we both go home with something, we have variety. Then we said, you know what, we can even give you seeds. We had a supplier from New Mexico who gives us all the seeds we need, and he started sending them pumpkin seeds, tomato seeds, because everything they would grow and eat, the next season they don't have anything to plant. Mm-hmm. that started that viral seed distribution in the village. And now grandmothers were empowered. They have a chairperson, a secretary, a treasurer, and a recorder, and they meet, and they are bright colors, and they would pass by, and they are laughing once again. They are being who they are. By the time the children come from schools where they are going, they find a happy grandma who tells them the stories. And the children come back to school and we make them write the stories. That's why they call memory books. Mm-hmm. But we took it further from that. We organized grandmothers and started a revolving fund. People call it microfinance. Ours is we don't charge them interest and all these. You must pay, so it is a revolving fund. One group uses it. When they pay it back, it goes to another group. They make baskets. They make beads. 
they raise chicken, they raise goats, and when the goats, like, like a heifer type of approach. That's why Heifer International gave you an in, award. In 20, 2011, again, gave me a Heifer. Jackson is a Heifer hero <laughs> <laughs> for Heifer International. So, and, and we've gone in with a grant from the Stephen Lewis Foundation in Canada and built 130 houses for the grandmothers, little small houses with an iron congregated iron sheets that do not leak. That's 130 among 7,000. The biggest thing for me that inspired me, I already knew the power of grandmother because my own grandmother was instrumental in my life. She saved my life by coming to the hospital when I fell out of a tree and read the story. You were in the hospital for many months, right? Six months. And she came every single night, crossing two streams in the darkness to read me a verse from the book of Psalms. She saved me. And my grandmother didn't know how to read. She would recite it from memory after her husband had read it for her during the day. So the power of grandma, I knew it. But what I didn't know is how these grandmothers would care about each other. All 7,000, they met in their different groups, 91 groups, and in each group they would sit down and say, who gets a house? All of them are vulnerable, but they chose one consensus, and that's how one-third houses were built for them. It's a powerful group. It sounds like a very powerful group. Um, When you first went back to your village and told your parents, and and you speak in your book a lot about a, a, I'll I'll call it a tension between you and your father. Yes. Um, (laughs) What was your parents' reaction to you coming back from the U.S. and saying, I'm starting a school? My mom has always been this wonderful, caring, loving, prayer warrior. Everything to her, she prays to God. Even to date, my mom has never been a person who you walk in and say, what do you want? All you want is you. You are here, everything's good. Even when she's in the worst pain of her life, uh, she's that loving. My dad, on the other hand, has always been a demanding uh, man. You read about him in the book. He's, he's a man set in his own ways. He was opposed to the idea of building a school. He had already watched my brother die. He had already watched my sister die. And now in his words, he thought I was also dying. He was losing me to the community. I think telling him that we were using our $5,000 saved, in his mind was now you are going to, every money you make, you're going to be putting it towards the school. It had no concept of a non-profit organization and how other people chip in and you do it together. Mm-hmm. It had no concept that all people in the village were going to contribute stones and bricks and organize themselves to work together. His thinking was he's going to do this all by himself and I'm never going to get a shot I've never had in my life, a house that I thought I would ever get. So... In a way, he was right, if that's how it was going to work. But he found out later that's not how it was going to work, and he's been happy about the project. I wanted us to have something that would combine the community, bring them all together for only one thing on their mind, children. 
and their welfare. We did it in Nyaka, and we've done it in the United States. Whether you are a Republican, whether you are a Democrat, whether you are a reformist or you are gay or you are straight, when you come to our organization, you come in with one thing on your mind, children's welfare. And we put our differences on the side and do that. Mm -hmm. In Nyaka, it is the first time you would see a grandmother who is Anglican side by side with the Muslim one, side by side with the Anglican one, all working at Nyaka for their volunteer month and talking. Some of them, it is the first time in their lives they have communicated because that barrier has been broken. So when you say a holistic approach, you are talking a truly holistic approach. Yeah. It should give us a peace prize. <laughs> That's next. <laughs> See if you can take that to other places, but we'll hold on that. Jackson, tell me... Um, You've done so many things in the last 10 or so years in terms of the Grandmother's Project, the farm that now is growing food to support the schools, um, bringing people together in the community, reshaping the way people think about HIV-AIDS, re removing the stigma from that. Mm -hmm. If you had to think, what are you most proud of? Wow. What am I most proud of when... I walk back to the village. This is the village that shaped and made me the man I am. And I have all the memories from this village. When, every time I drive back and I'm walking in the village, jogging in the morning, and I see those purple uniforms walking with their legs wet from the dew, walking with their notebooks, I am so proud to see that one child at a time, somebody's dream is realized because of something that I was part of to begin with. Yeah. We are looking to start our own our secondary school. And it is true, when you look at the children we are drowning in poverty with no hope and with nothing left for them. And here they are resuscitated and they have an opportunity to go to school. Our children have gone to the eighth level and sat for their national exams and three years in a row, or eight, or nine, and ten, a hundred percent, all these children have passed their exam to go on. That exam in Uganda is one of the most difficult exams. Children who live in the city and they are driven their Mercedes-Benzes to school every day, they pass it on 20%. 20% of the children Students. who sit pass it in different schools. And here is a tiny orphan school that is passing 100%. One, because we take a holistic approach to meeting their needs. Our graduation rate in the U.S. is currently, um, we're losing at least 30% of all students do not graduate from school. 50% of students of color do not graduate from schools. And here you're talking about a school where children are living in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. No computers. I'm assuming in the schools not every child has their laptop. There's um, no laptop. No laptops. At all. Sharing textbooks. Yes. And yet they're passing very difficult written exams that, that without accommodating to their different learning styles, the exams don't accommodate. 
How do you get them to the point where they're able to do that? One, they have teacher. All our teachers are local. They are from that village. The, some of them had moved away and came back once the school started. That's one. Number two, we've worked hard to take out the obstacles that would impede children from learning. One of those is the lunch program. When a child is poor and they are thinking about food, they are not going to concentrate. Our children walk miles and miles. But the biggest piece, even before really I go deeper in others, the biggest piece is these children want to learn. They want to learn. They have their mentors and their their eyes are on the prize. Mm-hmm. They know and they understand the only way for them to break the cycle of poverty and privation to get that education. So from childhood, children in Uganda who go to school in these circumstances, they hold on that so dearly. They are already looking far beyond what I think many students in this country do. I found it appalling when I talked to college students and I say, what are you studying? I don't know. I'm, I will find out. When a student in high school in Uganda, whether they are poor or rich, you ask them the same question, they will tell you. I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be a social worker. I'm starting to be a lawyer. We know by high school. So that's one thing. But our children at Nyaka School, we took out obstacles that impeded them from going to school. The clean water system, people thought we are just building clean water systems so you can save lives, waterborne diseases. But we also wanted children to be able to come to school with fresh mind. They're already walking seven and a half miles. If they don't have clean water around near their homes, they have to walk two hours before they come to school to fetch water and leave it home. By the time a child comes home to school, their mind is already gone. They are tired. They can't even walk. They are, so that was out. Many girls who go to school, their chore is to fetch water. Early in the morning, all the obstacles she would meet in the morning now are not there. They come to school early. Then when they get to school, they eat. When they are sick, even with a wound, a child would have stayed home because the leg is hurting. Now this child at Nyaka school said, I'm going to limp because once I get to school, a school nurse is going to give me a bandage. That day, they stay in the school. In other schools, children are staying home because they have a migraine for 30 minutes. Once they miss the 30 minutes, they have missed the whole day. That's another one. The girls, as soon as they hit puberty in all other schools, they drop out of school. Even in rich schools in the city, it's looked at as something. They don't talk about it. They are shy, and boys will laugh at me. At Nyaka, we provide them these, but they also learn about it. Boys and girls, you support one another. Sometimes this might happen. The girls are free. They talk about it. They have peer counseling. The nurse talks about it with them. But they also, when they go back home, typically many children live, all children in rural villages live with parents who don't speak English. They can't help them with their homework. So they are spending more time at school. They are supported at school. And now when they go home, grandmother is saying, did you do your work? She doesn't know what work it is. But during their group meetings, we tell them, you need to support your children. 
pray with them, ask them where they are struggling. You might not open the book and read it, but they will tell you and you can tell the teacher where they are struggling. Once we find out Jackson is struggling with math and Shana is wonderful on math, we pair them. Mm-hmm. We provide you everything free. The only way for you to give back is take care of each other. And now you have coaching on the side, one encouraging the other. One student passed the exam, Shana, to go to secondary school, and he said, but I don't want to go to secondary school. I want to learn how to drive and fix engines. And he's now a driver at Nyaka School, the first graduate who is paid and has a job. And he takes care of his own grandmother now. That one is not among the 7,000. So the, taking out obstacles has been the main thing, but getting them also to help one another. You don't have nerds and the stupid ones and the talented ones all separated. They are all together knowing my success is your success. Mm-hmm. If I pass and you don't pass, I would have also contributed to your failing. What can I do to help you? Do you ever miss living in the village? Every day. <laughs> How do you reconcile life in Michigan <laughs> and life in the village? I'm, I'm a believer in God, Shana, and I, I believe God puts us in different places for a purpose. And I look back and say, if I had stayed in the village, maybe I would not have met Shana. I wouldn't be on this radio program. There are so many people who are going to listen to this And for the first time, they are hearing about this. For the first time, they will pick up the book and read it and will tell others. That would not happen if I was in the village. But winter in Michigan? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, every time it snows, my mind goes back home. Every time we make a meal, I miss home. All friends I grew up with are in Uganda. My sisters are in Uganda. My 11 nieces and nephews, they are in Uganda. Uh, the food in Uganda, my mom is in Uganda. She's diabetic. She has arthritis. Uh, I think about her every day. But thanks to technology, now you can pick up a cell phone and call. Uh, you can Skype and p- nieces tell me, Facebook, they send me pictures and updates what's going on. So everything keeps improving as we go, but I do miss Uganda very much. Contrary to what so many people think, they always look at me and say, you must be so lucky to be in the United States. And I say, yes, it's a wonderful country, but home is always the best. Your experience of writing the book, very briefly, what was that like for you, for you to take um, The Price of Stones, is the mm-hmm. name of the book, mm-hmm. um, which is available all over, and I... I do have to say I really enjoyed reading it. Your experience of writing it all down, what was that like for you? Uh, The experience of writing The Price of Stones, and by the way, we might also add it is out in paperback as a school for my village. Mm -hmm. Those parts of the book were painful to write because it forced me to go back and relieve the painful memories of losing my brother painful memories of disagreements with my dad and childhood. I was candid and open in the book Mm. uh, as much as I could. So parts were painful, parts were joy. I would have wrote 
which what I had done had wrote manuscripts like papers, short chapters for children and our schools to read. I had written this for them. Not just think God just dropped Jackson out of heaven to come and build a school, but Jackson grew up in the same village under the same circumstances. One difference, I had parents and they don't. But I walked the same path they walk every day. I swam in the same world. I wanted them to identify and focus, knowing we can create some mini Jacksons in the area. But that was wonderful and a joy to write. But as I kept editing, the editors at Penguin kept saying, you need to add in your personal experiences. We need to combine mm-hmm. those two. And the book is written in a such a way that you get a memory from my childhood. Then you get how it relates to the children at Nyaka right now. Those, when it came to me personally, it was harder to write about me yeah. than it was to write about children. And then I get in the chapters where now I went deeper and spoke with the children. You meet girls who are about to be married at 12 years old, seated down with them. Many people in this country read about it. Christoph at New York Times writes about them. Half the sky is a book full of these stories. Mm-hmm. But when you are seated in a room with that girl, and she's puffing and crying, holding your hand, I don't want to get married. And you sit and you are helpless, there's nothing you can do. And the girl, they come, the dad picks her up, and you know that night she has been taken, forced to have sex with an old man who might have HIV AIDS. You can't reconcile it. Those were hard. And I have seen these girls. When I looked at... Uh, a boy like Bruno, who is living by himself, 12-year-old boy. My son is nine right now. Even when he's going to the bathroom and you're eating, he say, may I go to the bathroom? He wants that reassurance. He knows he'll wake up in the morning and dad will be there. It never occurs to him, to my wake up and he's not there. That reassurance is not there for Bruno as he goes to bed in the darkness every night. And when you ask him what he tells you, I do my homework in my head. That's what puts him to bed and wakes him in the morning. Hillary, who is not in a book, but who walked 50 miles because he heard there was a school for, for orphans, which is what really forced me to build a second school after this kid walked for three days mm. to come to one school, that is Kutamba. Uh, and then the Scovia, the last one, which was also painful to write about, it was painful because that's how my nephew, my sister's son, was born with HIV AIDS. And he died before Nyaka was built. In fact, he died in 2001 in January, then Nyaka was started in uh, 2001 in August. But Scovia's death born with HIV AIDS, survived until she comes to Nyaka and goes for four years at Nyaka, and she's dying of HIV AIDS and telling her grandmother, Grandma, when I die, I want to be buried in a school uniform. Nyaka school uniform with an emblem for the children's sake on her chest. And the grandma says, no, we can't get you another dress. And Scovia says, no, 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 no. 
my happiest time in life has been the time I spent at Nyaga, and I want to die a happy child. Besides, when Jesus comes back, I want to tell him about Nyaka at resurrection. Two days later, she dies and we bury her in a school uniform. That will never leave my heart. That in time of joy, in time of sorrows, even when they are dying, they are dying happy children, just like Make-A-Wish Foundation here. Their wish is met. Even if they die on the plane back, that child dies a happy child. And we have seen several die in Yakajezi, dying happy because they have got an opportunity to be loved and cared for. So I recommend that if you want to know more about Nayaka School and about Twisigi Jackson Kaguri, that you read. It's called In Paperback, A School for My Village, or in Hardback, The Price of Stones. It's the same book, and it's a really incredible story. There's also a website you can go to for mm-hmm. Nayaka Schools, and the website, Twisigi, is? Nyakaschool.org, N-Y-A-K-A school or one word dot org um thank you so much for being our guest on profiles thank you for having me it's my pleasure we're going to listen to the niaka school choir as we go out and these are the children from the school singing thank you so much again thank you thank you The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.